I love parades, which is why this is one of my favorite Sundays on the church calendar. I love the majestic sound of the organ, and I get a religious rush when we stand up and sing all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. Who doesn't love a parade? However, today's parade is different. Unlike the others, over the next few days, the Palm Sunday Parade actually transitions into a passion parade. By Tuesday, the crowds, instead of publicly cheering, were hiding in their homes. By Thursday, while celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus looked across the table and predicted that one of them would betray him. And by Friday, the loud hosannas were replaced with the haunting chant, Crucify him, crucify him. Now, many churches, including most of the ones that I've been in, tend to ignore the Palm Sunday Parade. They ignore the fact that it transitioned into this kind of passion parade through the end of the week. And that's unfortunate. In the words of the late Peter Gomes, if we take the passion out of Palm Sunday, it becomes nothing more than a festive dress rehearsal for Easter. So each time I read the Palm Sunday story, I remember the words of a Jewish philosopher named Abraham Heschel. Religion, he said, begins with wonder but ends in politics. Religion begins with wonder and ends in politics. Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor experienced that as a little child. She was only seven years old at the time. She and her parents attended a white frame Methodist church in the Ohio countryside. It had a matching parsonage with apple trees in the backyard. The pastor was a kind young man with no family of his own. He soon became a regular guest at their dining room table. She writes, I grew to adore him. He was vital and funny and he could catch an airborne fly in one hand. He listened to me when I talked and he let me lead him on tours of my projects around the home. He seemed able when he looked at me to see a person and not only a child, and I loved him for that. And I remember one Sunday he asked me to sit up close to the pulpit because he wanted me to hear his sermon. And on that day I listened to him talk about the beauty of God's creation and our duty to be aware of it. And then all of a sudden I heard him telling the congregation about a little girl who kept tadpoles in her bird bath so she could watch over them as they turned into frogs. And how her care for those creatures was part of God's care for the whole world. It was as if someone turned on all the lights, not only to hear myself spoken about in church, but to hear that my life was part of God's life and that something as ordinary as a tadpole connected the two. And then she went on to remember that terrible day. At first, all I knew is that something was wrong. Threat hung in the air, as it had on those dark afternoons in Kansas. Only this time, it was not the weather. Civil rights had come to Ohio. It was a phrase that made adults talk loudly and lose their tempers. So they chose sides and they defended them. And they wanted my new friend to choose sides too, so he did. The doors of the church were open, he said, and he would stand there himself to make sure they remained open to everyone. So that's where they hung him 
in effigy in the doorway of the church, a grotesque stuffed figure that bore no resemblance to my friend swaying in the heat as he packed his bags and left town. Religion begins with wonder and ends in politics. That's the real meaning behind Palm Sunday. It commemorates the day when a kind pastor from the countryside rode into town and then in full view of the Roman government became a political activist. No, he did not identify with one particular political party, but he did, let's make no mistake about it, he did mix politics and religion. And he did so by standing up for the politically oppressed. Harvard's Harvey Cox called Palm Sunday a brazen display of nonviolent revolution. A little history is key here. In his book titled The Last Week, Marcus Borg writes, there were actually two Palm Sunday parades. In his words, two processionals entered Jerusalem on a spring day in the year 30, one from the east and one from the west. They took place during the annual celebration of Passover when the city was overflowing with travelers. From the west there appeared a state parade, a visual display of imperial power. Amid a great ominous cloud of swirling dust, there were cavalry horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on top of flagpoles, the haunting sounds of marching feet, creaking leather, clinking bridles, and the beating of drums. And then Borg writes this, Pilate's parade displayed not only imperial power, but also Roman imperial theology. According to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but also the divine son of God. Now, the second parade came from the east, and it was very different. It was a ragtag group of people wearing camel's hair instead of leather, sandals instead of boots, men and women carrying shepherd's crooks instead of guns and flags. This ragtag Palm Sunday parade was not spur of the moment, as many of us have been led to believe. Rather, it was actually prearranged. What Borg described as a counter-processional, a planned political demonstration. The young donkey is key here. Jesus tells two disciples to go to the next village and find a young donkey for him to ride. So that's what they do. And as you remember, that was not the first time that Jesus rode a donkey. When Mary rode into Bethlehem, she was on a donkey with him in her womb. And seeing Jesus on this little donkey, the Jewish people cheered their hearts up because they remembered the words of the prophet Zechariah, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. He will cut off the war horse and he shall command peace to the nations. Donkeys, unlike Pilate's war horse, were symbols of humility and peace. So the contrast of these two parades is stunning. No great ruler would ever think of riding into town on a donkey, which is exactly why Jesus did it. Today's equivalent would be Pilate coming from the west in a huge gas-guzzling suburban with bulletproof glass, and Jesus coming from the east in a Prius with the windows all down. 
Hence, Jesus' triumphal entry, his politics of nonviolence, made a complete mockery of the Roman government. And that, my friends, is what got him crucified. That's what got him crucified, that counter-parade. And years later, Jesus' political execution morphed into a deeply personal theology of Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. I'm reminded of something that happened a few years ago on Palm Sunday. A woman approached me after church, looked me in the eye and said, I don't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross so God would forgive my sins. And then she began quoting scripture. Watch out when your parishioner begins quoting scripture. She said, what about the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? What about him? And what about that passage where Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive someone? And Jesus answers 77 times, which means indefinitely. So pastor, it appears to me that God is not practicing what God preaches. And then she got personal. The world around us is coming apart at the seams. People are starving. The polar ice caps are melting. Russia is riding the war horse. And children are getting gunned down in their classrooms. Ah, but so long as I have accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, that all that counts, right? That's all that counts. Yes, she drove a Prius. But she was right. For many Christians, the cross of Christ, Jesus' death is all about me, my quivering little soul. Jesus died for my sins. I am saved by his death. Now, at the same time, there is another theory, another theology of the cross that believes we are not so much saved by Jesus' death as we are saved by his life. And it's wonderful, and it's ancient, and it goes like this. Jesus embodied the fullness of God. That is, Jesus embodied a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Ah, but religion begins with wonder and ends in politics. So this second theory goes like this. Honestly, Jesus was terrorized. He was tortured and executed not to appease God for our personal sins, rather because he stood up and he spoke up for others for corporate mercy and justice and peace. In fact, I think if Jesus were here in the flesh today, I'm sure he would preach how individuals in this country invoking their personal freedom worship semi-automatic guns more than a classroom full of little children. Jesus stood up and spoke for others for corporate mercy, justice, and peace. Hence, Easter Sunday. I love this. The resurrection is God's affirmation, not of Jesus' death. Rather, the resurrection is God's affirmation of the life that he lived. God's affirmation of a life poured out for children and women, the marginalized and the oppressed. And it's beautiful. And that's precisely what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to faithfully join Jesus' passion parade to risk a little, 
We are called to stand up and speak out for others. Our next hymn, and I've never sung this before, puts it beautifully. Before the cross of Jesus, our lives are judged today. O us, let now the healing of his great spirit fall and make us brave and full of joy to answer to his call. I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come forth to die for poor ornery people like you and like I. I With wise men and farmers and shepherds and all, but high from God's heaven a star's light did fall, and the promise of Peace. 